covers it's, it's the power of ten. It's, you think it's a little bit yeah. vulgar. Yeah. Was that a reaction to peakling trees, which was so careful? Um, no, not really. I just wanted to do something that felt <clears throat> a little dangerous in a sense. I mean, by which I mean, I wanted to do something that felt inescapable, and that's why I like that cover so much because it dared you not to look. And I think that you know, I wanted something that felt. Uncomfortably emotionally intimate as a reader, and I wanted to try to create that quality of not being able to look away, of not being able to escape, and of not being able to deny Jude's life. You know, because so much of Jude's life is people denying him in one way or the other. You know, denying him his independence or his body or a sense of self. And in a way, I wanted to give back to him as a character the reader's attention you know the reader not being able to of falling into something so deep but not being able to get himself out of it you know I wanted the world to feel to not give the reader anything to anchor himself with you know I mean there's there's a reason there's no dates in the book and that there's no sort of posts there's no there's nothing for the reader to hold on to and steady himself and I wanted the reader to feel untethered you know to begin the book thinking that this book was a book about you know post-college New York life which I love that genre and then slowly realize that they're falling into something they don't know into some sort of abyss and they're sort of grasping an air and there's nothing to kind of catch their break their fall as they keep falling you know and so there's nothing for the reader I think to really ground himself I wanted the reader to always kind of feel like he was on shaky ground here and part of the extremity this isn't really answering your question but part of the extremity of of the emotions in this book the sense that everything's a little super hyper saturated that everything's drawn in sort of brighter or darker colors than it needs to be the fact that you know there's just a sort of intensity of sadness and intensity of happiness and intensity of love I wanted the reader to feel drugged throughout it and to have the kind of, I mean, I, I personally think it's a great sort of gift when you get to experience something like that. You don't might not want to do it that often, and it might not be that pleasant an experience, but it's an experience that only fiction can provide you, and so why not try for it, you know? It was something more about that. You said earlier that the Jude doesn't change, was, yeah. there was an act of defiance. Yeah. Is there a frustration about the kind of novel that does seem to, to dominate now, where there's an, a story arc, characters grow and progress and learn, and as you were saying, they, they move from trauma to advice of awareness to redemption? Is it? To me, it's more the literary frustration with these characters who are so... Um, hold the readers at such arm's length and there's because they're too there's something almost glassy about them you know that they're kind of moving through a life they're flaneur through life and you're, you as the reader are never really allowed there's a kind of emotional stinginess I think to some of these books and I'm not going to name them by name but they're they are meant to be a remote, slightly chillier reading experience. And some of them are very good, but it's not what I wanted to do with this book. I mean, this book is old-fashioned in a lot of ways. And Who are you? I mean, I was wondering about that. You mentioned Dickens. Yeah. Um, were there models for this kind of... Not really. I mean, the models were, were mostly visual art. The kind of visual art, and this visual art is not really in vogue either, but visual art by people like Diane Arbus, where there is something... 
that sort of takes you and grabs you and, and, and doesn't allow you to skate off that easily. And I wanted to try to recreate the immediacy and the discomfort of those photographs in a, in a book form. Um, so it's not so much a literary model I was looking to then to a different form of art but try to recreate the sensation of just um, sort of being smacked on the side of the head by that art you know is there a frustration perhaps with a certain kind of moment in kind of western civilised living whether it's the kind of art that we're enjoying Mm. or the way that friendship has become so commodified or relationships Mm. have that you know we have Facebook and friends to them how on the mic um (laughs) That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. I mean, there is definitely much more of a way through technology to hold friends at arm's length these days. You know, to say, I mean, the word friend has changed dramatically, you know, like the word like has changed dramatically. But there is a way, I think that there is a way to have what you consider a friendship with someone and then never see them or never have a bad word exchange with them or to never have to contend face to face with who they are. And I, I think that. You know, some of the greatest, it's interesting, some of the greatest friends books about friendships are, in fact, pre-technological books. Because it was a sustaining relationship outside of the ones, the bonds you had to have with family, and the ones you had to have with your spouse, which were tied up in property and money, or work. And so your friend was your only way that you really had to explore the idea of selfhood, and the idea of somebody else's selfhood. Nowadays... You're right. If you choose not to have that sort of urgency and that sort of depth of involvement and that sort of jealousy and that sort of envy that gives a friendship, a deep friendship, its thrill, then you can. I mean, you can completely opt out of the messy parts of friendship if you want and just be someone who, you know, people who communicate it by Twitter or by whatever. Um, in this book, you know, there's not a lot of technology. I mean, people should be yeah. texting a lot more than they are, but, but texting <laughs> is a very unsatisfying, I think, literary device. So there's a lot of talking and there's a lot of phone calls. And But there is, so that's why it's, you know, it's artificial in that sense. But I think it's, you do have people, and I do know people who, for whom this idea of maintaining a friendship, this ideal of what a friendship is, is an ongoing process and an ongoing kind of what's even the right word it's an ongoing experiment in human relationships I think and, and people take it very seriously but you're right if you choose not to you don't have to anymore because I suppose with relationships there is however difficult it is there's a, there's a way you break up a relationship right. what do you do with a friendship right and I think one of the interesting things about Jude is that he demanded something that was like that relationship he, he challenged you to, to, to leave him or if you stay, you're going to stay and have to put up with the following 93. Right. Incredibly upsetting. There was something almost like a romance, but not, not quite. I don't think he thinks of himself as a demanding character. Okay. Um, but I think... But I think that he is unintentionally a selfish character. On the other hand, the reader forgives him a lot, or at least I did. Because I think A, it's unwitting. And B... It's survival for him, I think. I I think that he is someone who, sort of against the odds, is a loving character and is capable of love and giving it and receiving it, but also, I think, and is a good friend to others. 
but part of being a good friend is also being a good receiver of friendship and love and I think he's a little shakier on that he just I think doesn't know how to do it and you realize that that skill as much as the skill of anger or, or self-defense is a skill that you're taught through sort of healthy childhood experiences which he didn't have and so the idea of what a relationship should be and can do I mean, he had to learn from this guardian who used him so given that I think that he's fairly well adjusted but I think a lot of the frustration with him as a reader and also from his friends, you keep thinking, God, if he would only just say the truth or he would only just open up or we'd only just talk. But I think for a lot of people, there is a point in which you can talk and then you have that moment in time in which you're able to speak and if you don't take that moment that moment passes you by and I think it happens to him several are times are you also I mean you were saying earlier about your suspicion of therapy are you also suspicious about this idea if you could just get it out and tell someone what happened but it's it would be a weight off your mind and then it would all go away and then one of the things the novel does often brutally is when you find out what happened and actually maybe Jude just can't get it I do think that speaking being able to speak what happened to you and in a sense tell a story which is sort of the fundamental of what we hope to be able to do as humans is to tell a story and it's the story of our own lives I think it is a good no matter what but you never know to whom you're going to tell that story and you know one of the scary things about being a storyteller is you don't know what your audience is going to say and so you can get yourself so worried about that that you just end up saying nothing at all and I also understand Jude's inability to simply speak I mean being able to say the words being able to name what happened to him is also a skill that you sort of need to be taught. And if you're not taught, it's very, very difficult to learn it on your own, I think. Is there anything therapeutic about writing this novel for you personally? It is a novel very carefully about expressing something, whether it's for JB or Willem, mm. and even for Malcolm, I think. But for Jude, there was a real intensity to the, to the prose and a real sort of bludgeoning sort of simplicity to the life. And I was wondering, it felt like you were getting something out, but that's also my journalist I question. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think that one of the interesting things about writing this book is that for me, it was, as I said, I always knew where I was going with it. I always knew how I wanted it to end. But it did bring up questions in my own life that I hadn't considered and that I hadn't anticipated and leaves you without ways to solve them. So... I think a good artistic experience means that you find yourself thinking, asking yourself questions that you hadn't thought you would, but it often doesn't give you a way to resolve them, and that was certainly the case with this book. You know, I think it, I did end up thinking about things I hadn't thought were significant or asking myself rethinking what I thought about certain relationships or certain, or certain people, not always for bad, but, but it really was it's a personal book not so much based on content but based on sort of ways of thought about 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 life I mean it really is to me in a lot of ways a coming to terms with 
how you think about your own history, how you think about your responsiveness to that history, how you realize you've coped and not coped with certain things. And it's a surprise because you're not, you don't go into a book thinking, well, this is going to answer X, Y, or Z question. And instead you come out with A, B, and C more new questions. And then the book ends and you don't know what the answer is. You, you said earlier that you talked to lots of people about their careers. It didn't, one of the ways the novel didn't work, it's an idea of value and, and an idea of ambition and achievement. And obviously you're, you're very successful and um, and have made a, you know, your, your way in a very difficult competitive industry. In, in, and in New York, it's probably, I imagine, more competitive than anywhere else. Um, but did it, did it give you... No, it's certainly that? bitchier. No, I mean... <laughs> I don't know about competitive. Did it, did it give you pause to weigh why you wanted to do the sort of things you did? As you were saying, you wanted to live in Manhattan, you wanted to live in so, you know. No, but it does make you, it does make you think. You know, everyone does come to New York for something because they're reinventing themselves in some way. And, you know, I think some people get there and they reinvent themselves and then they think, now what? And for some people, it's it's a process of realizing that the thing you want to reinvent yourself as is no longer what you want anymore. And then what? And I think that, you know, I'm 40 now. All my friends are in their 40s. It is the time, I mean, you were saying too, when you start thinking about what's next, you know, and, and what's now. Because it's very easy in your 30s. You know, you know what you want and you're working towards it. And that your entire 30s, is con- your 20s are consumed by having fun and your 30s are consumed by really working towards that. And then you think, well, now I have it or I don't. But at any rate, who am I and... and and your things have slowed down enough in a sense and you're and you know who you are more so you can start thinking about that thing that happened to me or the thing that I did when I was you know a child is it maybe having some sort of resonance is it has it affected the person I am now is there anything like that for you sure I mean I Yes, and I can't even really articulate sort of what those issues are, other than it, it, it did sort of, it does make you think in a fundamental way, or at least writing this book makes you think in a, a fundamental way, with the idea of selfhood, which I wasn't expecting from the process, from writing it. Was writing fiction one of the things you wanted to do? It was, it was, but... You know, it wasn't the only thing I wanted to do, and this book took me by surprise in a lot of ways, because it ended up being a much more immersive experience than I thought it would be, and it's... How can I put this? It's, it's just left me with a lot more questions, I suppose, than I thought, than I anticipated. No, they're playing the Can I ask what one of those questions? I'm not even really sure that I'm able to say. I know this is a very unsatisfying answer for but I'm not really even sure I'm able to say. That's how sort of vague these questions are in a way, in a sense. Is that because the, I found the book deeply unsettling in that way in a way that I probably haven't really processed you could tell me it's like sort of random um, questions, but is that part of it, a desire to shake 
to shape the reader a little bit, to, to, to get them to ask whatever questions it is in, the, in, the, in their life. It wasn't the intended goal, but I do think that in the way that one of the most gratifying things has been having people say that they really did feel that they had entered a separate world with these characters and that it had made them rethink their friendships and their own relationships and that's a great compliment I mean because it had the same effect for me too was it deliberate in, in those terms to, to not say how September 11th, which I guess might have happened mm. at, at one point, or to have events in, in New York to have that, like, a hurricane? Or, um... I wanted to feel very... You know, my original goal was to have every chapter feel like present day. Yeah. And and I, it, I couldn't quite do it. So there is a movement of time in this book, but it's a very slow movement. And it's probably 30 years compressed. I mean, time is very elastic in this book as well. So you, if you wanted to read it and sort of a fixed dates to it you could but but you could also not but I intentionally wanted to feel and this goes back to the fairy tales again like something that wasn't dateable so you're not concentrating on the sort of events of New York so much as the mood of New York and the mood of New York is one of constant ambition reinvention but it's not about tied to certain political and historical moments you know and I wanted and again I think without those distractions really what you're focusing on are the emotional lives of these characters it's a New York book but it's also not I mean when you look at it page by page there's not a lot about New York in it but what I wanted to get instead was I suppose the tenor of the city rather than the landmarks or the personalities of the city do you think that's the way we live our life anyway that, that I get very fed up with the side of the political novel which seems mm. to be very in vogue as, mm. I remember in Saturdays sort of character constantly walking down the street looking at things and thinking that's a metaphor for the yeah. war in Iraq yeah 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 I'm sure you know Ian McEwan thinks like that I mean I uh, you know I hate it when I'm reading a contemporary novel and they'll drop in a brand name and for example like you know she wore Prada and you're supposed to start inferring certain things about the character based upon what she wears and it allows the reader to do too much of the work so you're trying to say that the character is you know, has disposable income, maybe is something of a fashion follower, you know, but but not that cutting edge. And it makes the reader do a lot of that filling in when you should just be describing the character. And so I didn't want, you know, I didn't want it to have it be a post 9-11 novel and have the reader fill in what that means based upon think pieces that they've read about what a post 9-11 New York means. You know, this book is not about, it's about something that's eternal to New York and I think inherent to New York, but it's not about a changing New York as such. Is it also a slight sense that it's a world unto itself? Yeah, I think it should be. And I think that's also, yeah, I hope it provides some of its immersive qualities. You know, that you really are, these characters could be living in any period of contemporary day New York. What makes New York New York in this book is the sorts of people it attracts, not the moments that are happening there, you know? Was, was there any kind of model for him? I know he's dedicated to his very close mm. friend, and I kept trying to work out if there were anagrams of his name in the book, because I think Harold is a sort of anagram of his name. Mm. He felt so utterly believable I, mm. I saw in, that, in that way that I, I just want writers to tell me, yes, that's it. <laughs> I didn't have a model for Jude. He came to me very fully formed, and this book was originally going to be 
Okay. Written very differently. So the first half, it was going to be two halves and then an epilogue. And the first half was going to be something similar to this, with Jude as a very high-functioning person who had a group of friends. The second half was going to be him as sort of this character who's living a marginal life and sort of jumping from job to job with the characters appearing in different guises you know one of them is a drug counselor and then the third part was going to be what happened to him as a child and the idea being that you know I always find it fascinating if you could take two people and they've suffered the same kind of abuse they turn out so dramatically different sometimes and it's based often on nothing more than luck you know and sure I think some people are more resilient than others but that doesn't mean if you're not resilient that you're somehow a weaker or lesser person it's just that I am fascinated by how differently two people can turn out given a very traumatic experience and so I wanted to create a character who really in every way that counts in American society has everything and yet is really unable as I said earlier to learn the fundamentals of what he needs you know and and you know we value along with redemption sort of success in such a limited and traditional way especially in New York and so here's someone who has it and he really doesn't have anything and I wanted good things to happen to Jude and a lot of good things do happen to Jude but I don't know if those good things are enough to out- or can ever outweigh the things that already happened to him as a child. And, you know, it's to me it was more, it was less about piling the trauma upon him and more about the sorts of skills we're given as, as children either equip us or they don't for what life throws at us later on. I was reading this book about Ethiopian orphans and who were orphaned by their mothers dying of AIDS. And it said that the orphans there are much more self-possessed and, and ready to, to survive in the world because they've been given those you know four or five or six or seven years of stable, loving family life. And those years make all the difference, even if they're later sort of, you know, their parents die in terrible ways. Because one thing you don't find out with Jude is his, his absolute origins. Right. What, so the fact that he doesn't have any kind of fa- family structure right. is, is that, in some ways, is that his tragedy that he's, he's not got that kind of rootedness from the... I, I, unless I missed the bit where no he, you're right he never he, you never I mean I have a sense of, of but but you know this book is a lot about its absences about its absences of information and its absences of sort of of sort of facts in a lot of sense and sort of grounding and so on and so forth and I wanted to have a character who felt almost mythical in his origins and in his in his sufferings, but not mythical in his abilities. I mean, he's not superhuman in his abilities to save himself. And, you know, on a very, on a, as a reader, I wanted to create a character who the reader would root for and sort of love despite themselves and would rage at and would follow down down a very dark road and would know that the road is getting darker and darker. There there are moments it feels like a really, really angry book. Mm, Um, I think it is an angry book. And, you know, it's... I think if... You know, it's the skill that you keep wishing, I think, as a reader that Jude would have for himself and doesn't. 
Are you angry uh, in the most practical or most basic factual sense with some of those institutions that should be there to, to help and guide kids, so the, the, the Catholic Church on one hand, and then the, the sort of care system in both felt Dickensian and you know, sort of almost these archetypally sort of... Well, but you know, it's interesting. I mean, it, I was someone was talking to me about, and I hadn't known these existed until I started writing this book, but... One of these things I find really brutal, I don't know if they do this here, are these adoption fairs, which Jude goes to as a child. And they actually happen in the States where they're held in large conference rooms or things like that. And kids are actually standing around waiting to meet these prospective parents and potentially be adopted. And it just seems like a terrible... I mean, I understand sort of the thinking behind it, but it seems like a terrible thing to put a child through. You're basically being treated like, you know, a piece of fish at the fish market, and these people are checking you out and checking to see if you might be a good fit for them. And yes, there's anger at institutions, but it's also, I suppose, I don't know if it's it's so much anger, it's sort of wonder that this still happens on the scale that it does, you know, that there is still such corruption in institutions and that there's still such inability to help people who are the most helpless and who societally we have to because people who are damaged this way often grow up to become people who damage others and you would think certainly for the sake of social self-preservation that there would be more of an interest and intention to help I think what's the problem is it just that we as you say we reach our 30s and 40s and we're just too busy I mean I think it's difficult to love unlovable people and I think that you know like it or not thank you no one wants to there's something frustrating about unloved children you know you know that you should sympathize with them in principle but it's such an investment of time and it's such an investment of emotion and I think only a very few people are really able to do that your first book was very much about uncomfortable often homoerotic um, slightly violent male relationships mm. and this book is explicitly about, about those things but also about loving male yeah. relationships um, I just wanted to ask, what, you know, what, ge- what gives? I mean, I know I've, I've said this before in, in interviews in the States, but, you know, I find men very interesting because there's a lot of things that, as men, you're never allowed to discuss, and, and you're never allowed to feel, and you're never allowed to put voice to. And, you know, I talk to my friends sometimes, and even friends who are a little younger and are fairly in touch with their feelings, and I can tell from what they're describing that they're feeling angry or ashamed or sad or fearful but as men you're not ever really taught to discuss that and there's relationships between men whether it's between gay men or between straight men or a gay man and a straight man have a certain sort of quality that men just kind of reflexively fall into with women you can talk about anything you know you really can I mean you can talk about your female friends about politics or about makeup or about sort of things that happen to you as a child that you can't get over 
when you have two men together, it's it, it's 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 a very different conversation. And to witness those conversations is to witness everything that's not being said. And you know, so as a writer, it's a great gift to work with fifty percent of the population who aren't allowed to discuss so many things. You know, and and to work with those boundaries and to kind of talk about and to explore what happens when you don't get to say certain things. What happens when you're not allowed to express certain things? Is 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 a great subject, you know. It's sort of endless, and you know, because the cause and effect often is so clear. And you think, God, if only they had been allowed to do X, Y, or Z. And it's not just, of course, British culture, American culture. It's all developed nations. You know, I I find sort of observing my male friends very interesting because of that. Because for some of them, they're older now. I can tell there are things in their past that they would like to discuss, and they just feel they can't, you know, and they never have. Even with you, mm. but. So bottled up. Yeah, yeah. But I think women can and do, and it's it is one of you know it is it is one way in which women really do have I think the sort of upper hand. Do any of them, your male friends tell you if they can talk to you about things, why they think other men can't, or do you have a, an idea why? I mean, not everyone agrees with me on this, including a lot of my male friends, you know. But I certainly they were never taught to. I can't. I don't know of any man who, when they were a boy, was encouraged by their mother or father to express their emotions. And even people from fairly liberal, free-to-be-you-and-me kind of households weren't encouraged to do that. You know, it's very sad. I mean, when you look at little boys, they're so... I mean, they're very affectionate, and they're very playful, and they're very sweet. And then at some point, it just changes, and I don't know why it changes. And, you know, now you know I'm old enough that I have friends who are in their mid-40s and are trying to raise their sons differently. And they said it's very, very tough, because they keep sort of falling back on these same old kind of lessons and tropes that they learned when they were kids. Everything from as simple as boys shouldn't cry to be brave. I mean, this, the sorts of things that... I remember when, when my brother and I were living in Texas, and we came home from you know from my brother was beat up one day and my father just said you know and he was very upset and my father just said oh we'll beat the kid back up and I mean to be fair he also would tell me the same and the same story but but there wasn't the sense of sitting it down and, and, and talking it through and I do think that socially and societally old habits die very very hard 